The boundaries between many disciplines are artificial. So exposing yourself and taking that in, you know, breathing it in and breathing it out, that's just what we should be doing. And, and I think it's in some ways unnatural to be siloed. Hey, and welcome to the Parallax Podcast. I'm Liz Brown. On this premiere episode of the show, I sat down with Dr. Youngmoo Kim. Dr. Kim is the director of the Expressive and Creative Interaction Technology Center at Drexel University, or the Excite Center for short. At the Excite Center, designers, artists, and technologists come together to ignite innovation through transdisciplinary research and experimentation. We are excited to host Dr. Kim for our first episode of our new podcast, which exists in part due to the generous support of the Excite Center. We kicked off our conversation talking about how the center was created and why he believes STEAM education is so critical to empowering the innovators of tomorrow. The Excite Center opened in 2013. I'm really curious to know who were some of the other key players in its creation and what were some of the initial challenges that you faced? The Excite Center, I mean, it was the very, very happy accident of so many different things. Some of the key players early on were, at the time, our vice provost for research, Deborah Crawford, who was, had spent a long career at NSF, National Science Foundation, so been there for, I think, close to 20 years and then came to Drexel. And then, of course, John Fry. Because as he initiated his presidency, you know, came up with a new strategic plan, looked at across the university what kind of things were happening. And one of the things that was identified from a research standpoint or a research innovation standpoint was the sort of highly siloed nature of the university and trying to find new projects, new initiatives to kind of bring people together across the university. So I started a conversation with Deb. I had started a lab called the Music Entertainment Technology Lab in electrical engineering. I've been fortunate that we'd, you know, grown in size considerably uh, in the previous five to eight years. And then started looking around for others across the university who kind of shared this idea of interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary collaboration. And that's when, you know, in this process, we started to discover, oh, hey, my colleagues in engineering don't even know there's a college of media arts and design like two blocks down the street, right? Or, you know, my colleagues in, you know, biology don't know about the work in the School of Education on biological science education. We, we started to identify more and more of those challenges, but, of course, found some, some really brilliant and innovative faculty members early on. Jean-Viev Dion, who is fashion and industrial designer by training, but really also a scientist. And her work, again, has incubated at the Excite Center for many years or for about five years and then spun off and is now the Pennsylvania Fabric Discovery Center. And that's an amazing, amazing story. People like Frank Lee, who created the Drexel Game Design Program or co-created it, and then was starting an extracurricular initiative for students to explore not just game design, but the entrepreneurial aspects of creating game companies. It's really interesting. You mentioned being able to bring together people from different disciplines. I'm curious to know why you think that's important. Why does that matter to bring people together from different disciplines? And what kind of space does that create? I'll give you my personal answer, and then I'll give you sort of the official answer. Sure. (laughs) My personal answer, it's like the air. It's like oxygen. You know, it's just part of what we do, and it should be part of what we do. The, The boundaries between many disciplines are artificial. So exposing yourself and taking that in, you know, breathing it in and breathing it out, that's just what we should be doing. And and I think it's in some ways unnatural to be siloed. The official answer, of course, is that every discipline was created through some other perspective or some other angle. So most of the things that we take for granted today, engineering, engineering didn't exist 
you know, 150 years ago, it was a discipline that spun off of other disciplines coming together. How we create knowledge is through the intersection of different ideas. That's the process of creation. And I think more often than not, there is so much overlap across what people from different backgrounds are working on. We just use different terminology. Mm-hmm. And we just have to get together in the same room and figure out how to align that. Absolutely. So full disclosure, my dad's an urban planner, a professor of urban planning at the University of Illinois for a long time. And it's funny, I never thought about it at the time because, of course, well, the long story is that, of course, if your parents do one thing, you want to do the opposite. My grandfather was a professor. My dad's a professor. The last thing I wanted to be was a professor, and somehow I ended up back here. But, uh, you know, getting exposed to some of his work in urban planning is funny because what he did could be construed as many many schools as civil engineering, right? And he even had a choice there, I think, early on, or he could have taken an appointment in civil engineering and, you know, whatever, for whatever reason he didn't. The tools, if you're doing mathematical modeling, the tools are the same. If you're dealing with issues of infrastructure or of, you know, sociology or, you know, just large-scale planning, of course, there's a huge overlap between urban studies, urban planning, civil engineering, government, public policy, civic engagement. All of these things have areas where they overlap. And unfortunately, in our sort of academic and hyper-specialized world, we've gotten to a point where people celebrate putting up, you know, boundaries or or even creating different words for the same thing. Creating different words for the same thing is a big frustration of mine. I also think it's really interesting the work that you do around STEAM, but I'm curious if you could give a uh, definition of STEM first for people who don't know what that is and why you think STEAM is more powerful. Well, STEM is an acronym that stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math came to the fore in the early 2000s. National Science Foundation and others really started pushing it as a way of encapsulating greater, well, educational focus and resources around these fields because they saw these as the drivers of the future economy. And of course, I'm a STEM educator. I'm an engineering professor, and I'm a big believer that there's tremendous opportunity in STEM. But (laughs) there's always a but. There's always a but. (laughs) Throughout my school, schooling and my my professional career, I have been trained as both a musician and an engineer. And for the longest time, I was trying to figure out how to bring those worlds together. I didn't want to give one up. I mean, the way I tell my story is that, yeah, I double majored in music and engineering, not because I had any grand plan. It was because I couldn't decide which one to give up. I was very indecisive. So the, the notion of STEAM for me was just really trying to find out how these worlds must intersect in some way. You get to a college and you look through a catalog and you want to be sort of a music technologist and you find out, hey, that's not a thing. Well, I just made it up, but, you know, I want to do this. I mean, I think that there's a real, again, so much potential between those two things. So I was very lucky. I was able to double major and then, you know, find my path kind of doing both, did graduate degrees in both music and engineering, and then um, did my PhD in media arts and sciences at the MIT Media Lab. So for me, and that's really where I got my my deepest exposure to the notion of STEAM. STEAM wasn't a thing yet, but being in an environment where, yes, you have world-class technologists you have world-class musicians. My advisor, Barry Verko, is a composer and one of the founders of the field of computer music. <clears throat> and I think he thinks of himself as a composer first and a technologist second. So being in an environment like that where you can really see positive and really impactful contributions from those intersections, from those different fields. So STEAM is more than just tacking on the arts yeah. to STEM. Right? They say, oh, it's just one more letter, right, STEAM? It's so much deeper than that. STEAM is the idea that we can actually not only learn better, but do more by integrating across the sciences and technology and the arts and design fields. Sharing those perspectives and trying to 
infuse multiple perspectives among our students and our colleagues actually leads to better outcomes, both in the educational setting, and that's why I'm a huge proponent of STEAM education, but also in the work that we do. So at the Excite Center, you know, we have PhD and postdoc projects that I would still very much call STEAM, whether that's new musical instruments or new sensing methods or robots that are doing expressive things. And of course, we have middle school and even younger students uh, who engage in education activities that have been designed to be integrative across the arts and sciences. So STEAM to me is a very big and broad concept, and you have to be comfortable with the ambiguity of not specifying everything in the acronym. Everybody wants to add a letter to STEAM, right? There's STEAMED, there's STEAM, there's STEAMER, there's STEAMY, (laughs) right? I have a joke that says, you know, if you need to add letters to STEAM, you don't get it. Yeah. Right? If you can't deal with the ambiguity that, hey, science, technology, engineering, math is not, you know, there are many, many fields, subfields of that that are not named in that acronym. And if you can't, you know, find a way to in your own mind to say, hey, between science, technology, engineering, arts, and design, and math, that there is a core concept of integration in there and that you feel the need to add more and more letters, then you're probably not getting the core concept. Yeah. And I would also argue that everybody has the ability to be a creator and what it takes to be an innovator is Mm -hmm. creative thinking. Yes. So all of those backgrounds require that. Even if people don't normally think of math and science as being creative fields, a lot of things wouldn't exist if people didn't allow their mind to wander and really figure it out. And even a mathematician has to think creatively. We have this weird notion of creativity, that it is some gift. Yeah, that you're making something artistic or design work. Brilliant, and it has to be expressive. And, you know, and, and there are creative works that do that. But take it back to its roots. I mean, creativity is simply creation. It, the, the ability to create something. And that can be, you know, a physical thing. That could be a virtual thing. That could be an idea. That could be a work of art. And that notion is absolutely shared across all of those fields. Exactly. Scientists create, mathematicians create, artists create, designers certainly create. I just think we can do so much more in establishing those commonalities. How do we establish a common language? How do we find better ways to communicate across all of these different disciplines? Have you found any creative ways to do that? I certainly haven't discovered them, but I've certainly been exposed to many, and this is what we try to model at the Excite Center. One is, of course, show, don't tell. And, and actually having, you know, the creation right? The thing that you build. And again, it could be a physical thing. It could be a virtual thing. But being able to show it, that is so much more meaningful to people. We have a saying around the Excite Center in which we we say, explain with empathy. When you try to share your work, realize that most people don't have the background that you have, haven't studied this field. I mean, we're very fortunate. We get visitors from so many different perspectives at the Excite Center. I mean, you know, people even just coming off the street sometimes to university presidents, right? And so you have to be able to communicate your work to this incredibly broad spectrum of people. So we say explain with empathy. Remember that people don't have that background. And I have a a thing I call the grandparent test, which is (laughs) can you explain your work or can you show your work in a way um, that would make sense to your grandparents? I love that. Or nearest living relatives who don't have a technical background. And again, this isn't my idea. This is uh, certainly something I experienced at, at the Media Lab, but many others also do this, where so many fields fall back to their vocabulary, to their notation, to their syntax, which is wonderful shorthand for making advances, not to take anything away from that. But they forget that most people don't read equations 
the yeah. same way that, you know, engineers <laughs> and mathematicians do, or that most people can't look at a, what, a graph theory flowchart and get meaning out of that, like most people who study that yeah. field. And it makes me think a lot about some of the work that you do around maker spaces and inclusion. And I actually was watching your TEDx and really thinking like, wow, you know, this guy gets it. Because it's very frustrating that everybody's always focused on things like access for all these years and not focused on things like equity. Why do you think there's so much imbalance in the maker space? Why do you think there hasn't been a person of color, a black person on the cover of Maker. Has there yeah. been since? No. That video wasn't from that long ago. No, it wasn't. And Make Magazine <laughs> has since folded, so they will never be. Oh, no. There will never be a black person on the cover of Make Magazine. If maybe somebody new needs to step up and create Absolutely. something more interesting. Absolutely. So, well, thanks for bringing that up. I mean, first of all, I am starting to get it. I don't know that I fully get it. None of us ever and, do. Yeah. So, I, you know, this is a journey and it's a process. And I'm, I'm sort of even late to the game in many ways, I'd say. But let's start with the demographics of STEM. And because making comes from STEM. Yes. I mean, it's mostly people who are, you know, had that background in technology and wanted to tinker. The demographics of STEM are just horrible, especially in education, right? And if you look at first gender, it's just incredibly imbalanced. I mean, particularly in the high growth fields currently of computing and engineering. But then you slice it even further and you look at, you know, representation or participation of African-Americans, black people, Latinx participants, and also low socioeconomic status students and it's just abysmal. I think one of the stats I threw out at my TED Talk was that, you know, in 2001, around 1.5% of all master's graduates in, sorry, I think it was in computing were black. 18 years later, in 2019 or 2018, still about 1.5%. Yeah, the idea of everybody being able to sit around a table together is kind of what really messed me up yeah. in that example. All, all of the black PhD graduates in 2017 across North America Right, in computer science could fit around a conference room table. It's so unfortunate. And yeah. I, it's just it's just one of those things that frustrates me every day. Yeah. How do we begin to solve these problems here in Philadelphia where we have such a large percentage of black mm -hmm. people yeah. that are not involved in this growing tech and innovation ecosystem? Yeah. Like many things in our society today, the benefits are only accruing to a select few. And yeah. I share your frustration. And, you know, this is something hopefully we, we are working to improve every day. The problem with implicit bias, and I would call it implicit bias in the STEM fields, because there are many studies that back this up. And of course, our numbers haven't changed. And, you know, the STEM field should be numbers-driven fields. Yeah. I mean, how can you be a professor, uh, you know, in engineering and look at the data and say this is okay? Can't do that. I mean, the numbers say this is not okay, and it hasn't changed. It's not changing for the better. With implicit bias in these fields, we, people think from a very young age, oh, this is what a computer scientist looks like. This is what an engineer looks like. And that's going to impact both students and faculty. We have to acknowledge that there is implicit bias. And then we have to examine, you know, the entire pathway of how we train, whether it's computer science engineers or really anybody, you know, in any of these fields and see, you know, how culturally exclusive those pathways are. See, you said right. something interesting, though, because you mentioned quantitative data. Mm -hmm. And what I find in my day-to-day -day is that I think qualitative data matters more that people allow it to or allow themselves to believe because the whole thing with implicit bias and the things that you have to deal with every day as a person of color walking into these innovation spaces is the way you feel is 
to me, the biggest problem as a woman of color who's LGBT. I walk into spaces all the time where I'm the only person of one of those categories. And it's very much my feelings that stop me from doing things every day. And so I'm trying to urge people to consider qualitative information as well and think, okay, how can we bring together the qualitative and the quantitative information and say, we want to make sure that people of color feel safe in these spaces, that that is an important question to ask. And that is an important goal to try to go towards. Oh, absolutely. Well, if I can add on to that, because yeah. actually our makerspace research was largely qualitative. So in visiting 30 different education makerspaces around the country, doing interviews and taking photos and, you know, looking at recruitment flyers and job listings and all that. Again, there's no line between qualitative and quantitative. We, we yeah. do you know, mixed methods. But it was, you know, there was a large qualitative element to this. And from this study, you know, the reason our report that we wrote afterwards is called Making Culture was really trying to speak to this point that makerspaces have derived from tech culture, and tech culture is not particularly inclusive. In fact, yes. it, in fact, it's highly exclusive in many ways. And that if you want a space that is going to be inclusive, you have to rethink your culture. That the space isn't about the equipment or even necessarily the type of production that happens in the space. I mean, of course, you could have a music makerspace. You can have, you know, a uh, automobile makerspace. You can have a fabric makerspace. But what is that sort of culture that you're trying to create in terms of your, you know, with your students and the kind of maker creativity that you're enabling. And if you don't start from that premise, if you start with, oh, what equipment do we need? You're automatically buying into some of the tech biases that are out there. These things are out there and people are trying to sell to schools and to nonprofits, you know, hey, here's a whole makerspace kit. Just buy this makerspace <laughs> kit and, and, you're you know, set. and you're set. <laughs> but you know what? Th those were designed by engineers for engineers. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to think about how perspective plays a role in what's seen as innovation and what's seen as technology. The example of hip-hop music and the beginning of that in history and where we are today and how much that's impacted our society. And yet people don't see hip-hop as an innovative thing. Like you wouldn't, it, there's not many people that would have a conversation about the creation of hip-hop music as being an impactful innovation. Yeah. You know, the impact or the, the, the sort of assessment innovation only happens in hindsight. There are very few things where people realize, oh, this thing is going to be huge, right? No, it takes time and not just for hip-hop. I mean, the joke with classical composers is that, oh, they were never understood until they're dead. Yeah, right? exactly. And, and people thought they were crazy. Famous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that part doesn't worry me as much. It is more, again, the pushback that's always there, especially, you know, when you're talking about works of expression, the pushback that is laced with not just tradition, not just with conservatism, but at times racism. Yeah. Right? And it's because, oh, this didn't come through a conservatory. This didn't come through the traditional schooling methods or the training methods. This came from, you know, kids on the street playing with tape decks. And for some reason... In some communities, right, that is not seen as an equal, uh, a legitimate pathway. I know you also are doing some work with K through 12 as well. How does that tie in? It all ties in. It's all <laughs> one one big soup. Because I, I like to tell people we don't draw a line between kind of our education and outreach work and our sort of research and, you know, innovation work. It's all tied together. And in fact, some of the best experiences, I think, for our students is to work with younger kids. Try to explain, you know, again, what you're doing or a concept or the the, the meaning of something to, you know, a 12-year-old. 
<laughs> that is a really, really challenging thing, especially if it's, if it's about technology or something like that. So the work that we do, all of our K-12 programming is built around this framework of STEAM. Again, it's never an add-on. It's never, oh, here's, here's how to code. Oh, and we're, we're going to add some music to that. It's about an integrated approach. And so the vast majority of the activities we pursue, the curriculum that we deploy are things we created ourselves. Right, because there wasn't anything right off the shelf. There, there aren't great STEAM teaching materials out there. The stuff that out there is actually, I think, largely superficial. You know, just as one example, we have a series of activities that scale from you know middle school age all the way through graduate school, actually, around sort of musical robotics. It's a big stretch. Yeah. Musical robotics. Musical Tell robotics. me about that. Yeah. So in our high school program, this actually started, they, in our high school program, is 25 kids a summer, and they each do an individual project. In the span of a week, they, they build it, they make it, and then they perform with it at the end of the week, which is the best day of the year. Our showcase is <laughs> such a fun day. So one of our project categories a couple of years ago started to be, okay, we want to you know put some of this more makerspace idea in here. And so they would build these contraptions and then, you know, build very simple, not even simple. Some of them are complicated robots where they would then, you know, hit things or strum things or pluck things. So, you know, robots, but then learn something about, you know, engineering and coding and robotics along the way, but for a musical purpose. Now that is sort of expanded into a middle school activity where we kind of do a simplified version, but still with the same core concepts. They actually construct something of their own design, use it to create sound. It could be simple. It could be, you know, hitting a tambourine. It could be shaking a shaker. But then we're going to use it in a performance at the end because it, it's so important to have that, whether it's a deadline or whether it's just sort of that, you know, presentation that the, I call it the crucible of public performance, right? <laughs> You're going to be in front of people. And so the thing, you know, really, you really want it to work. So we have the middle school version, which uses very simplified materials and electronics. We have the high school version that I mentioned. We had an undergraduate version where, um, for a freshman design class, we built a whole robot orchestra and then yeah. actually had to play together. And they played that we did it around the Harry Potter theme. And so we did this big performance where 10 different instruments all playing, you know, in combination. You know, it's a real robot orchestra. Of course, we played Harry Potter <laughs> to kind of give it that aura of magic. So that was fun. And then even in our graduate projects, we have really novel musical instruments like our magnetic resonator piano, which is a grand piano, but we use electromagnets to vibrate the strings. Oh, I think I've seen well. that in there. Yeah, and so it's a piano that can make all sorts of different sounds and, you know, it's been used uh, in recitals around the world. Wow. This is something that I've been really interested in that makes me think about this concept of, have you ever heard of technological disobedience? Mm-hmm. And Ernesto Orozo. I grew up in a low-income community in upstate New York, and I always found that people in my neighborhood could make something out of anything. They could find something and create something out of it. So when I heard of the concept of technological disobedience, I thought, wow— this is really cool. I would love to see more people integrate this into the work that they do and just allow the opportunity for people from different backgrounds to be seen as innovators, even if the perspective is that they're taking junk yeah. and they're putting it together and creating something. Well, I would say that the history of technology is more of that. It's yeah. more of technological disobedience and saying that, oh, well, this thing that was originally designed for this, maybe we can use it for this other thing or repurpose it or maybe match it with this other new piece of machinery. There's so many different components to that. And I think one of the sad things about where we are in terms of technology, with, with technology being dominant, really, it's, it's so dominant in our culture right now. 20 years ago, 
you know, hey, we were geeks who liked computers, and and 40 years ago, like, nobody had a computer. So, you know, it, it's been this weird progression to where it's this dominant force in society, and yet it's lost that sort of get under the hood and change things or repurpose things aspect to it. Now now it's just shiny objects that come out fully formed, and they're, they're beautiful, and they, they're wonderful things, but again, I think... On a large scale, it's uh, that that getting under the hood and tinkering has been lost. Add to that the monoculture that has developed around that. So, oh, you know, it must come from, you know, this kind of computing and this kind of company, and it must look like this. And the irony, of course, is that the originators of the, the, the Steve Jobs and the Bill Gates of the world were sort of, you know, incredibly disobedient technologists. Yeah. Right? They were the ones who saw, oh, well, we could do these other things that you can't even conceive of. So somehow that has transformed into, in, into something else. But the other problem is then this monoculture has then really, really drowned out, as you pointed out, these other forms of making, these other forms of creativity that just should be celebrated. Yeah. And, and haven't attained as much acclaim. I don't, you know, again, because cultural forces are kind of, I think, uh, oppressing that. For some reason, a lot of those activities get sort of siloed into a hobby. And so, oh, well, that, that's cool. That's nice. But that's just your side gig. That's a hobby. That's not a real thing. No, it needs to be front and center. It needs to be mainstream. We need to celebrate that in, you know, and certainly our education programs and in and, and our workplaces. Yeah. What areas do you feel our Philadelphia's tech sector is lacking in comparison to other locations? And what are some of our strengths? Philly's tech sector, it's still very nascent. It's very early in its sort of evolution. This is not a disservice to anyone here, but Philly does not have the, the sort of mass of computing, AI, data science, machine learning, people doing that, that are really driving the tech sector right now. And again, this is no surprise. How do we get there, though? Well, here's the question. Do we want to get there? Do we want to? Do we want to get there? And this is this is where I would flip it and say, no, this can be a good thing. Because you know what those concentrations have done? They have created tons of privacy concerns. <laughs> They've created <laughs> a, intrusive AI. They've tr- created tracking systems that are biased, right, that, are, that, that do terrible jobs of, you know, uh, facial identification on people of color. So I think it's actually, it could be a good thing. But let's not kid ourselves. Let's not say, oh, that we have the same concentration of this as they do in Boston or San Francisco or Seattle. But what we do have in the Philly tech scene is uh, it is much more diverse. It's it, Again, it could be even I more diverse. I would agree. Much, much more much diverse more than other cities. Than other cities, right? And that is a strength. But I guess my, my the, the unknown is whether that by itself is enough of a strength to kind of build a large ecosystem, uh, a, a tech-centric ecosystem. I don't know. It's certainly a huge component of it. And it is something that I think will lead to much better tech companies in the future. And so if you had a pairing of those things, like I I think that if we had face recognition research going on here, and if you have a much more diverse representation among researchers and among employees who are working on that, we would have much better results. Yeah. Right. We would have much more equitable systems. Yeah. As you know, as you've probably gathered for the last thirty-nine minutes or so, <laughs> uh, I love to live in that space in between. Yeah. Right. So I'm not saying we don't need more people with like depth of technical experience, particularly in computing and AI, but all you know other technical fields as well. We do have a very high concentration, of course, in uh, healthcare and in biotechnology, and that's great. That's wonderful. But the places that have seen sort of exponential growth have that and the computing and AI 
and, you know, large concentration, big departments at universities, and tons of venture capital. Our universities are great, but in the computing fields, we're not as big. And in terms of the expertise, like the of the companies that are out there, we just don't have anywhere near the critical mass that, that you know, in some of these other sectors. So I think that's a great opportunity. I, I agree, though. I agree. I, think I would say the thing that Philly has more than any other city I've been to, though, is I guess because it's the city of brotherly love. I really do feel it. I moved here from upstate New York, and I feel like from the moment I got involved in civic hacking and everything with Code for Philly and all these really amazing meetups is I feel the love. I feel the love from other people working in technology, innovation, and STEM backgrounds. I feel like Philly is a great place for people who want to do things impactful. Mm-hmm. And people really genuinely care about their work. Maybe we don't have some of these other things, but I do feel like there's something great coming in the future here. Absolutely. I would say that in I think you just pointed to it, that the level, particularly in our tech ecosystem, but maybe even overall, that the level of sort of civic engagement and connectedness in Philadelphia is much, much greater. Yeah. I think more people should come and see it. Oh, absolutely. And again, I think that is an enormous source of strength. So my hope is that, you know, as our tech ecosystem evolves here, it builds from that and not from just investment and venture capital, not just from, you know, new advances in AI or computing, right? Those will be elements, but that it really has this core of inclusivity, of community, of, you know, of humanity. I I think that is what's been missing from this tech explosion. There are very few companies that feel like they're run by human beings. Yeah, but I do feel like Philly founders and Philly people in STEM are some of the most amazing, genuine people I've met in traveling all across the states and around the world at times and going and getting involved in tech ecosystems. I feel like this is something special here, and I'm excited that you're here as well. Thank you. No, I'm excited you're here. (laughs) And yeah, I, I completely agree. I think this is a very, very special place. Thanks so much for listening, and thank you to Dr. Kim for stopping by the studio. We're excited to bring you this podcast and have many more conversations on the way. Be sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. And when you do, don't forget to leave a rating and review. We'll rely on your feedback to make this project the best it can be. Any further thoughts on the conversation? Send a tweet or message to us at Parallax Collab on Twitter. A special thanks to Christopher Heckler for editing today's episode, Kiliman Zigo for our music, our producers, Helene Forian, Lee Nentwig, and Nicole Koltik. This project is made possible by support from the Excite Center, the Design Futures Lab, and a recording space at the Dornsife Center for Community Partnerships at Drexel University. Thanks so much for listening.